Only the extraordinary richness of its mines could justify its founding, but in general, the hill offered itself as an isolated mass without roots, a gray mass, high and cold, immeasurably rich, but also immeasurably isolated. For the powerful emperor, for the wise king, this lofty mountain of silver could conquer the world. If you're like most fans of fantasy novels, or even somewhat recent Hollywood blockbusters, you probably assume we're talking about the Lonely Mountain from Tolkien's book The Hobbit. While the description could be appropriate for Erebor, the Lonely Mountain, I'm not referencing the fictitious setting described in the beloved book. No, I'm actually referring to a real-life mountain in South America. Situated in southern Bolivia, high in the Altiplano, or High Plains, Potosí has earned the nickname El Cerro Rico, or the Rich Hill for the unimaginable amounts of silver and other precious metals mined from it more or less continually since its alleged discovery in 1545. So what does this story have to do with our study in U.S. history? I'll let you discover that for yourselves as we dig deeper into Potosí. Pun intended. South America was divided by the treaties of Tordesillas and Zaragoza in 1494 and 1529 respectively, the eastern half was awarded to the Portuguese and the western half to the Spanish. With Spanish territory more or less settled in the New World, the Spanish wasted no time in their continuing efforts to explore and discover the riches found in their newly acquired lands. While Columbus never found large deposits of gold or silver or any fantastically wealthy civilizations, what he did find among the Taino natives of the modern-day Bahamas was enough to whet the appetite of many Spanish soldiers slash explorers, such as Cortes, who conquered the Aztec Empire, and Pizarro, who conquered the Incas. With those two conquests, it became clear that precious metals were in abundance in the New World. The only question now was where. These civilizations had to get their treasure from somewhere. Spain wanted to know where they were located. In 1545, a man named Diego Hualpa was working for a Spaniard named Juan de Villarroel when he found the largest silver deposit the world had ever known. Accounts vary a bit, but what we do know is that Diego was searching for an Incan shrine or burial location. While climbing down the red-colored hill, looking for one of his lost llamas, he was allegedly blown down and hit actual pay dirt. As he picked himself up, he noticed he was covered in the rich silver ore he had seen in mines located near Potosí. He informed Juan de Villaruel, and in a very short time, one of the largest cities in the world, at the time, sprang up at the foot of the barren mountain despite its remote location, an extreme elevation of over 13,200 feet. Villaruel sent news to the Spanish crown along with 96,000 ounces, that's three tons, of silver. Was he paying for the mining claim on the land? No. Was it a tribute to the king as a means of getting on his good side? Not really. The reason he sent so much silver to the king, Charles V, was because it was mandated by law. Any precious metals discovered in the Spanish colonies were subject to what was known as the Royal Fifth, or, said in a different way, the Royal Cut. Essentially, it was a form of taxation. Here we get to an idea connected deeply to our study of European colonization in the New World, and one that shaped the foundation of the United States. The idea of mercantilism, or a system of mother countries, creating colonies around the globe to establish a favorable balance of trade on their behalf. This process would create vast amounts of wealth for the European nations that founded colonies, assuming there were resources present to exploit. In the case of Spain, 
they found the mother of all silver mines at Potosi. It's estimated that roughly 60% of all silver mined in the entire world during the second half of the 16th century came from Potosi, essentially cornering the market on the world's silver mines between this one mountain and other mines that would later be located and found in Mexico and elsewhere in Peru allowed the Spanish to trade globally. They had more currency than they knew what to do with. They built everything they could with it, including the ships that made up what would be eventually called the Spanish Armada or the Invincible Armada. Yes, that's the same grouping of ships that I'm sure you recall from World History 2 or AP Euro that was sent to England for a planned invasion and subsequently proven by the English Navy that it was much less than invincible. Now, as mentioned, mercantilism dictated that mother countries would use these colonies to trade with other nations in hopes of becoming wealthy. It would probably surprise you if I told you that only about two-thirds or so, possibly even less, of the silver mine de Potosí was sent to European and, to a lesser degree, New World markets during the period. The rest, believe it or not, was sent to Asia, China, and the famed Ming Dynasty specifically, with some of it ending in the locations of India and eventually in the Ottoman Empire. From all of this, we can easily see how this legendary silver mountain greased the wheels of global and especially European, trade during the 16th and 17th centuries. With the flood of new silver, global trade became much easier. It alleviated the hard currency shortage that Europe had been suffering from ever since its population had started to rebound back after the Black Death wreaked havoc there in the, Middle Age, in the late Middle Ages. Everyone used it as currency, and some nations, such as China for example, refused to accept anything else for periods of time. One of the most interesting parallels between the famed Silver Mountain and the British colonies in North America was the amount of illegal trading that occurred. In British North America, there were strict regulations on trade with other nations. Remember, the mother country was to be the sole beneficiary, really, of all trade within its colonies. Essentially, if you were a colonial merchant, you had to sell your goods only to British merchants or exclusively use British transport for your goods being bought and sold. Early, these rules were ignored, and a period of salutary neglect allowed colonists in British North America to skirt or sidestep such rules. Eventually, the British Crown would force an end to the practice of salutary neglect, which would help spark the American Revolution. As direct trade outside of the British Empire was illegal for their colonial subjects, so was the case with silver mined from Spanish mines like Potosí. Black market silver was a huge problem. Anytime silver was mined and processed, it was to be marked with the royal seal. A fifth of all silver mined was for the king, but often entrepreneurs would sidestep the rules and only declare a fraction of their haul. This would lower their overall contribution to the Spanish crown and allow them to pull in much higher profits. Often, this black market silver was smuggled to Brazil or Buenos Aires by foreigners, similar to the colonial and foreign smuggling operations that occurred in British North America that upset the British crown. Because so much silver was smuggled, according to some data, it is possible that the actual amount of the world's silver mine between the 16th and 18th centuries from Potosí was anywhere between 60% to 80%. So we can see how Potosí began in the uh, integral link it became in global trade, but in what other ways is it relevant to our study? Well, one of the biggest issues surrounding the silver mines located there was how would the precious ore be extracted and who would be doing the work? Here we can make a connection to the racial hierarchy existent in Spanish America as well as to labor in general in the New World. 
Let's begin with the caste system and the question of race. As you've probably already read and discussed in class, the caste system created a social order in Spanish society. The most basic groups consisted of peninsulares, or Spaniards, that were born and raised in Spain. Criollos, or Creoles, who were white, uh, pure Spanish descent, but were born in the New World. And there is a huge distinction, legally, between these two groups. In fact, it was rather frequent that if a white Criollo woman were with child, she would hop on a boat, sail to Spain, so that she could have the child in Spain, so that that child, rather than being born a Creole or a Criollo, would be born a Peninsulare, and that would afford them much, much more weight politically uh, in, in the social system and structure. The next group were the Mestizos, and they were children that were born of mixed European and Indian blood. There were also Indios, or native Indians, uh, blacks who were brought as slaves from Africa, and mulatos who were born of mixed blood to white and black parents. And there was also every other combination you could ever imagine of those main groups. The largest would eventually become the mestizos, and they still make up the bulk of the Latin American population today. When it came to Potosí, the Spanish could not maximize profits from the mining operations if they depended solely on Spanish laborers and foreign entrepreneurs. They called this free labor. It just didn't work. They didn't have enough bodies to complete the work needed. Many would then assume the bulk of the work fell to African slaves, but while there were African slaves present, they did not serve as the main workforce in the mines. This was due to the extreme altitude and the subsequent lack of oxygen. Depending on African slaves was impractical on a large scale. Typically, African slaves in Potosí were domestic servants or skilled craftsmen. The only group left, therefore, would be the natives. The Spanish devised one of the most horrific labor systems in human history, based, albeit quite loosely, on a system already put in place long before with the Inca Empire. The Mita, as it was called, for the Inca Empire, anyways, was a means to draft labor for essential public service projects such as roads and bridges. And more often than not, it manifested itself in a sort of communal farming effort. That way, the empire would have enough food to feed everyone that was in it. However, the Spanish version essentially worked like this. And again, it was quite different. The Spanish viceroys in charge of large chunks of territory were given the right to conscript labor from the local indigenous population. Okay, So far, this is very similar to what was going on with the Incas. One-seventh of all men in good health between the ages of 18 and 50 in a select group of villages were selected to work in the mines each year. This labor draft of sorts would rotate between various villagers uh, and villages every seven years. Men selected would bring their families and livestock to the city of Potosí. This created enormous mass migration movements every year. Few would make the return journey home each year, either due to death or a lack of means to make the return trip. The effect this migration uh, had and the death uh, that occurred would truly devastate the surrounding populations. Many ended up staying in Potosí, thus the steady increase in native labor coupled with European outsiders coming to stake claims and to become wealthy caused this barren wasteland to blossom into a boomtown that rivaled the size of Madrid, London, and Paris at their time. The city became very diverse, but its layout reflected the systemic racism that permeated throughout the culture. 
the city was divided in half with the peninsulares and criollos, whites in other words, on one side and the indios and mestizos on the other. And I do not need to explain the differences in the living conditions between the two groups because it's exactly as you would expect, more than livable and rather refined on one side and quite squalid on the other side. There are some key differences between African slavery and the Mita system that need to be pointed out. The natives did enjoy a degree of protection and were guaranteed wages in the Mita system, albeit they were below the market value. There were also restrictions on how the natives could be used for their labor. For example, natives in warmer climates or tropical areas could not be sent to cold climates and at altitude. They were also only permitted to work a certain number of hours and days during the week. It is worth noting that the dreaded encomienda system put in place and then later revised by the Spanish is directly related to the Mita system. The labor was exceedingly difficult. It was very perilous, as one would expect. There was a saying that if 20 healthy Indians entered a mine on Monday, half may emerge crippled on Saturday. Typical dangers from mining, such as cave-ins and landslides, uh, respiratory illnesses, and other physical dangers were the norm. One of the most common ailments was mercury poisoning as mercury was used to refine the less rich silver ore found deeper in the mining tunnels. Working conditions were so terrible that there are stories of women physically mutilating their children as a means to keep them safe from working in the mines. There were other much less extreme means to avoid mine labor. Uh, the most common way to avoid labor in the mines was simply to move or to escape the villages not under the Mita that year. And this is what most students would say, well, this is what I would have done. Okay, it wasn't simple though. The constant uprooting of families was a strain, and often what few things of value, which would include livestock, uh, natives were able to accumulate were either left behind or sold for depressed prices or even lost on their journeys. All this would be worth it to avoid the mountain that eats men, as it is still called today. While the exact requirements of working in the mines would shift from time to time, often they meet the system uh, and the men working in it would work in a cycle of three weeks with one week that was dedicated to work and two for rest. On the surface, this doesn't sound too unreasonable, I know. But a set number of hours in a shift with a quota on the amount of material each native had to pull out of the mine during the shift caused problems. At times, the quotas were banned, but this was often ignored. One way to get around working limitations on natives was to order seven shifts to be completed a week. Each shift would be 10 hours, and two had to be back-to-back, -back, meaning at least one period of working 20 hours. If a native did not complete their quota, then they were required to work the following rest week to make up their shortfall. Exploitation of native and African labor was a staple at Potosi, just as it was elsewhere in the New World. Today, the mines at Potosi are still active. Though silver is no longer the main focus, most of the work is shifted to tin extraction, for example. Despite this one mountain being one of the oldest continuously mined locations in the entire world, and although so much wealth has been extracted from this single spot, Potosi is one of the poorest regions in the poorest nation in South America. The population of the city is still quite high, despite its extreme isolation and elevation, but its growth has stagnated since its colonial boom periods. While the city's population boomed during the early days, it often suffered bouts of disease that we now associate with the Columbian Exchange. The size of the mountain itself has also shrunk considerably. Archaeological estimates are that the mountain has shrunk by more than a thousand feet since colonial mining operations began in the mid-1500s. It has been said that so much silver has been extracted that you could use it to build a bridge from Potosí to Spain. 
And then they also say that another bridge could be built on the return using only the bones from those that have died mining it. This is one of the most glaring parallels that can be made to our overall study of European exploration and discovery of the New World. Not only did great riches, new foods, and agricultural practices such as animal husbandry between the New and Old Worlds bring prosperity, but devastation flowed freely between both as well. We can see the entire story of European conquest of the Americas in this one story of Potosí. The Spanish, for instance, claimed to have discovered silver at Potosí, though it was likely already a sacred site to the Inca. Similarly, Columbus claimed to have discovered the Americas, but clearly people had already been living there for thousands of years prior to his arrival. The Spanish tried different forms of labor to extract as much wealth for themselves out of the mountain as possible in order to maintain the balance of trade and wealth in their favor, mercantilism, which eventually ended with them relying on forced indigenous labor coupled with African slaves, as they could not secure enough men from Spain, free laborers, to work the mines. Similarly, many areas in British North America started out relying on indentured servants. This was the case in the Chesapeake colonies with tobacco cultivation, for example. This use of indentured servants was often their main labor force until that model became unsustainable and the use of imported slaves from Africa became the solution. The Spanish set up a form of taxation called the Royal Fifth that guaranteed the crown a cut of all silver mined at Potosí. But the black market silver trade, which included foreign businessmen, undercut revenues. We discussed a similar scenario in British North America, with colonial and foreign merchants undercutting British trade revenues. Finally, we see how the Mita system disrupted and destroyed indigenous lives at the mines of Potosí despite some Spanish legal efforts to protect indigenous workers. No amount of legislation, however, would protect natives from disease that was brought by Europeans, and the same could be said everywhere else in the New World. Not everything was stacked entirely against the natives, however. Ultimately, the astronomical amounts of silver that was mined by Spain and the New World brought about a crippling economic depression helped usher in its fall from European prominence. Perhaps this is where we can find the best connection to Tolkien's fictional Lonely Mountain that we mentioned earlier in our podcast. If dragon or gold sickness were a real thing, then the mighty Spanish Empire fell prey to it, ultimately to their tragic downfall. 